Well, to borrow a line from my father, if you can't preach after that, you can't preach. <laughs> you know, as a young preacher, this is a pretty intimidating place to come preach. You look around the room and you see former teachers and classmates and Sabbath school teachers, and you think of all the really good stories they could probably tell about you. But God is good, and it's my privilege to be back here today. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, as we spend a few minutes this morning meditating on this familiar gospel story, we ask that your Holy Spirit be present. Help us to hear the voice of Jesus clearly this day, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's the kind of story that sends a shiver down your spine. In the tiny French village of Vernoy lives a young sheepherder and aspiring poet named David. David has just had a major argument with the love of his life, Yvonne, and in wounded pride, he decides to set on down the highway and start his life all over again. David sets out late in the evening, and a few miles from Vernoy, he comes to a pivotal crossroads. Should he go left? Should he go right? Which way does his destiny lie? On a whim, David turns to the right, and he soon discovers that his destiny is indeed waiting for him. After helping a stranded carriage, David soon finds himself in the presence of a mysterious and beautiful young woman. A young woman who's being mistreated by a powerful and evil uncle. David is determined to defend her honor, so he challenges the great man to a duel. In the dim light of the great fireplace, the duelists stand at opposite ends of the inn table, pistols in hand, eyes fixed on each other. One, two, three, bang! When the smoke from the gunpowder clears, David lies dead on the floor, a bullet clean through his heart. And the pistol is decorated with the arms and the crest of the Marquis de Beaupartie. Okay. Wrong turn. Reset. In the tiny French village of Vernoy lives a young sheepherder and aspiring poet named David. David has just had a major argument with the love of his life, Yvonne, so in wounded pride, he decides to set on down the highway and start his life all over again. This time, when he approaches the fateful intersection, David decides to turn to the left to take the road to Paris. Days of travel eventually lead him to the great metropolis. In Paris, he's able to find a cheap room in the student quarter, and he begins to write day after day, just practicing his poetry. But one day, he meets on the staircase a mysterious and beautiful young woman. And pretty soon, the poet is in love, and he will do almost anything she asks. But one day, she pretends to be concerned about a relative's health, and she asks him to deliver a message for him, for her, to the royal palace. Now, David has not actually read this letter, but because he was in love, he decided to just go along with it. 
But before the night is over, David finds himself in the royal carriage. You see, the letter was meant to spring a band of assassins who would attack the king that night on the way to church. So David is in this carriage disguised as the king in order to prove that the woman he loves is virtuous. But at the fateful corner, the assassins strike, a gun is fired, and David lies crumpled and dead inside the royal carriage. And the pistol on the carriage floor bears the arms and the crest of the Marquis de Beaupartais. Okay, bad choice, reset. But now I think you know where this is going. In the tiny French village of Vernoy lives a young sheep herder and aspiring poet named David. David has just had a major argument with the love of his life, Yvonne, and in wounded pride, he decides to set on down the highway and start his life all over again. But this time, when David comes to the intersection, he stops to think, and he decides he decides that he really should go back and try to mend things with Yvonne. So he turns around and he goes back home. And in a matter of just three months, he marries the love of his life. But David wants to be a poet, not a shepherd. And he begins neglecting his flock to write his poems. Soon the family is in poverty but David stays huddled away, isolated in a poetic fancy. And meanwhile, Yvonne grows critical and distant, shrill with contempt. When David's collection of poems is ultimately criticized by a great poem, David goes into a pawn shop in Vernoy and buys a pistol. He retreats to his room. The pistol shot is heard all over Vernoy. And when the village men find the crumpled body beside the gun, they note that the pistol bears the arms and the crest of the Marquis de Beaupartais. Go ahead and shiver. I told you I already did. It may surprise you to learn that the story I just told you is the work of one of the favorite storytellers of the Western world. You know him as O. Henry. You know him for the gift of the Magi, or the ransom of Red Chief, or Mammon and the Archer. And they're all lighthearted tales with surprise and happy endings. But this story, Roads of Destiny, doesn't have anything happy about it. It seems to say that it doesn't matter what choice we make when we come to the crossroads of our lives, it's gonna end up badly. Somewhere, there will always be a pistol with the arms and the crest of the Marquis de Beaupartais. We shiver at such stories because we're afraid. We're afraid somewhere deep down inside that they might be true. We shiver because sometimes we have this persistent dread that no matter what choices we make, we're gonna end up with a hole in our heart or a hole in our head? Isn't life just really a bad set of unwelcome choices where no matter what you do, you end up as a victim of fate? 
I suspect that on the morning we read about in our scripture passage this morning in Luke 5, the man we know as Simon Peter was feeling a lot like that. There's nothing like a fruitless night of unproductive work to make you want to curse the coming day. When you've been up all night trying to meet a deadline or casting for a fish, and your brain is just as empty as your nets, all your choices look bad, all your options seem useless, and cynicism looks like the very good option. And that's probably why Jesus broke away from the sermon he was preaching that morning, to pull Simon Peter out of the grand funk he was in. In a very real way, Jesus the carpenter was determined to do a little fishing that morning. And the fish that Jesus wanted to catch was already on the shore, and that fish was named Peter. Jesus had begun to preach to an early morning crowd that had gathered around him on the beach of the Sea of Galilee. And as the sun rose higher and higher into the sky, Jesus grew more and more concerned, not with the great crowd of people who were standing in the sun, but with the one frustrated, angry, cynical fisherman sitting there on the beach, cursing over his dirty nets. You see, Peter was standing at his own crossroads of destiny that morning, and everything in his life would hang on the choices he'd make in the next few minutes. I invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to the fifth chapter of Luke. The story of Jesus meeting Peter at the crossroads of his life can speak directly to that moment when Jesus meets us at the crossroads of our lives. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. So here we have Jesus asking Peter for a favor. And this habit, asking for a favor, is actually something Jesus did a lot of. Many times throughout his ministry, when Jesus wanted to break in and present the gospel to an individual, he'd ask for a small favor. When Jesus wanted to reach out to a wee little tax collector named Zacchaeus, Jesus asked to be a guest at his house and eat at his table. When he wanted to show a young boy the miraculous power of God, Jesus asked for five barley loaves and two small fish. When he wanted to rescue a broken Samaritan woman from the mistakes and regrets of her past, Jesus asked for a drink of water. So when Jesus wanted to call out to a tired, frustrated fisherman on the shores of Galilee, Jesus asked Peter for something that Jesus doesn't actually need. And this leads us to the first thing that Peter learned that morning, and it's the first thing that we learn when we encounter Jesus at the crossroads of our lives. We sit there on the beach, muttering over our dirty nets, and here it is. Jesus always makes the first move. Notice, my friends, that Peter didn't volunteer to do a favor for Jesus. 
He wasn't standing there on the beach, waving his hand in the air, crying out, Oh, Jesus, Jesus, pick me. Ask me to do something hard and difficult for you. It's me, Peter, the loud one over here beside the nets. Now, Peter wasn't on the shores of Galilee that morning because he wanted to be a disciple. Peter wasn't even standing in the crowd, eagerly listening to Jesus preach the word of God. Peter was just mending his nets. Peter was just minding his own business. It was Jesus who spotted Peter. It was Jesus who initiated conversation with Peter and asked Peter for a favor. It was Jesus who invited Peter to follow him. Don't miss the point, friends. The story begins and the story ends with Jesus. Peter, and anyone like Peter, is just the middle part of the tale. Jesus always makes the first move. Now for some of you listening to me this morning, this sounds impossibly easy, almost too good to be true. A relationship with Jesus is impractical, you say to yourself. It takes too much time. Following Jesus requires too much sacrifice, too much effort. And what's the value of this relationship anyways? How is a relationship with Jesus relevant to my everyday life? I mean, does it really matter if I start my day with a jolt of caffeine or with a conversation with Jesus? You see, we're all too good at coming up with objections for why we ought to just sit there on the beach fixing up our nets and fixing up our lives. Others of you are probably saying, well, that all sounds nice, Evan, but it just doesn't really work like that. Tell me, how is Jesus making the first move in my life? Well, let me admit that it is a good question. But I urge you to look at it one more time. You see, Jesus is making the first move in your life in so many ways. You see, Jesus made the first move that got you here this morning to hear the word of God. Jesus made the first move by leading you to that job, by getting you into that school, by introducing you to that friend, to put you at an exact place in time where you could hear his voice clearly. You thought it was something you wanted, something you set up. But for 18 years or 30 years or perhaps even for 60 years, it's been Jesus making the first move. It's Jesus making the first move every time that friend or relative sends you that little text of godly encouragement. It's Jesus making the first move on that Sabbath morning when the organ is playing and the choir is singing and it seems like all of heaven is just crying out your name. You hear about a friend talking about a relationship with Jesus and you want that. You really want that. You see, Jesus is still making the first move in all of these ways. The invitation to follow him always occurs from somewhere outside of ourselves. Jesus always makes the first move. The second lesson that we learn from Peter's story is that the first steps are always near the shore. The first steps are always near the shore. 
After Jesus makes the first move, after he asks Peter for a favor that he doesn't actually need, after he gets into Peter's boat, he tells Peter to push out a little ways from the shore. Notice that these first moments of Peter's journey with Jesus occur in the shallow waters near the safety of shore. It's at these shallow depths that Peter has nothing to do but just listen while Jesus preaches to the crowd of people about what being a disciple is all about. Jesus makes sure that busy, bustling, anxious Peter is forced to sit in a boat just a few yards off the shore and listen while he preaches the gospel to somebody else. But I like to believe that the real audience that day was probably just Peter. The intended audience for all that Jesus said that morning may have been as small as just one. The real fish that needed catching was Peter. Friends, following Jesus isn't just a destination, it's a journey. Following Jesus isn't just about heaven, it's about here and now. Following Jesus isn't about living a perfect life, It's about living a prayerful life. Growth happens, maturity happens, development happens throughout the process. And like most things in life, baby steps are taken at first. You see, Jesus is making it as easy as possible for us to say yes to the gospel. He certainly has high expectations for us at the end of the journey, but he knows that you can't start with high expectations. And so he orders it so that those first few steps of faith are in the shallows. There aren't great demands or great expectations in the shallows. The first thing that Jesus wants us to do is something all of us can do. We can sit there in the bottom of the boat And listen. Just listen as he speaks the good news to our weary hearts, to our discouraged hearts, to our broken hearts. The first steps are always near the shore. Now you may have grown up with the idea that following Jesus is painful and difficult and reserved for the unusually righteous. But if you look at the text, look at who Jesus was trying to catch that morning. He wasn't after the theology majors in the crowd, with their noses in their Hebrew and their Greek, full of fine doctrinal points and scanning the crowd for a potential spouse. He wasn't fishing for Simon the Zealot that morning. Simon, with his hand on his sword and his closet full of picket signs that read, save the whales and kill the Romans. On that morning anyway, He wasn't after either Judas or Matthew. They were counting their change and full of three-year business plans and stock market indicators. He wasn't out fishing for Thomas. Thomas, with his objective, fact-based reasoning and demand for physical evidence. He was going to get Thomas one day, but today wasn't going to be that day because today was really only about Peter. Well, you say, how nice for Peter. Jesus had his target in mind, and Jesus caught his fish. 
But my name isn't Peter or Petra or Andrew or Andrew, Andrea or John or Johanna. What makes you think that Jesus is trying to reach me? Well, let me admit, it's a good question. It's perfectly reasonable to want to know if Jesus might be out fishing for someone like you. So I want you to see if you can find yourself in this list of the kind of people the Bible tells us Jesus was trying to catch. Maybe you're the woman at the well with her multiple objections and her multiple husbands. Maybe you feel like an outcast, like a tax collector, like Matthew or Zacchaeus. Maybe you're standing outside the walls of the church, looking in from the outside like the Roman centurion. Maybe you feel like the man born blind in John chapter 9. His life never went beyond the street corner where he begged. Maybe you feel like the lame man beside the pool who didn't have the faith or the energy to get himself into the water. Maybe your story is like one of the ten lepers, only one of whom returned to give him thanks. Maybe, just maybe, you're a Pharisee like Nicodemus, too embarrassed to wear your relationship with Jesus on your sleeve. Maybe your life has felt chaotic. Maybe the demons in your mind weren't all imaginary, and you've hurt yourself, and you've hurt others by the choices you've made. Maybe you're like Judas, the fine aristocratic soul whose dream of power got the best of him. Maybe your name is Martha, more concerned with her meals than in Jesus' meditations. Or maybe your name is Mary, and you can't get enough of the bread of life. Maybe like Lazarus, you already know the power of Jesus to raise you up and give you new life to start things all over again. Now, why is it that the gospel writers take all this time and all this space to tell us of Jesus reaching out to so many different individuals? A tax collector, a woman at a well, a Pharisee, a leper. Friends, the answer is so clear, even a theology major could get it. Discipleship is for everyone. Discipleship is for everyone. Every Tom, Dick, Harry, Peter, Petra, Mary, Martha, Sue, even you. But can you see what Jesus is doing here? He's systematically dismantling all the reasons we give for why we can't follow him. One, Jesus always makes the first move. It's not up to you. Two, the first steps are always near the shore. It's not that hard. Three, discipleship is for everyone, including you. He's not out there fishing for somebody else. Now, if the story in Luke 5 ended here, we might, we might think that the whole idea of a friendship with Jesus is just about saying yes to an altar call and staying in the shallows. Maybe you know this story. It's Friday night of the evangelistic series. The organ is playing, the choir is singing, the lights are low. And you get up out of your seat and you go down to the front with dozens of others. And you blink back the tears and you blink back the memories of how many times you've done this before. 
See, I told you. You know this story. But notice that the story in Luke 5 doesn't end there. The text says, When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. You see, one of the reasons that so many new Christians find following Jesus unsatisfying is because they never follow him out of the shallows. Tony Campolo has a catchy line about the way the story ends for far many two Christians. He says, many of those who go down the aisle to just as I am go back to their seats just as they were. You see, shallow water may be where you start, my friends, but shallow water isn't where you stay. Jesus is taking you somewhere. Lesson number four from the story, Jesus says, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. You see, Jesus has a goal for your friendship. He's not going to leave you stranded on a beach cursing over your dirty nets. Jesus can see what you can't see. Jesus can see that school of fish out in the deeper part of the lake. Jesus can see that school of fish that's going to give you the education of your life. Jesus can see your life moving into something deeper. Jesus can see your life becoming something special. Jesus can see all the joy in your future. He can see all the fish in your nets. And that big, wide smile on his face is the grin of anticipation. This one's going to get it. This one's going to find it. This one's going to get all the way to joy. There's just one more thing that needs to be said this morning. And it almost sounds like something unnecessary to say. But it's amazing how many people who put out into the deep end up leaving Jesus behind on the shore. It's remarkable how often people who first respond to Jesus strike off on their own and forget the one person that they should never leave behind. That leads us to the fifth and last lesson that Peter learned that morning and that we can learn this morning too. Make sure that Jesus is always in the boat. Notice with me this morning where Peter is when this story ends. The text says, when Simon Peter saw this, when he saw the miraculous catch of fish that filled his nets and merely made his boat sink, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter makes this, boat, this uh, speech from the bottom of his boat and from the bottom of his heart. And even though the words on his lips are, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. The real cry of his heart was, Please don't go anywhere, Lord. Please don't leave me now. You're the reason that my heart is full of joy. You're the reason I've got a purpose in my life. I'll go anywhere with you, Jesus. You name the place, you name the time. Make it shallow, make it middle, make it deep, I'm there. Make it morning, make it evening, make it sleep, I'm there. Make it happy, make it sad. Oh, I know you'll make it glad. I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. Friends, don't ever get into a boat unless Jesus is in it. Don't ever do a job unless Jesus is in it. 
Don't ever try a task unless Jesus is in it. Don't ever live a life unless Jesus is in it. Make sure, make very sure that Jesus is always in the boat. In the suburbs of Washington, D.C., lives a young sheep herder or aspiring teacher or doctor or businessman named you. You've just had a major argument with yourself about which way you're going to go at the crossroads of your life. And you decide, you decide to set on down the highway and start your life all over again. And when you come to the crossroads of your life and you're wondering if you should go left or right or turn around and go back home, there is another way. It's the way of the water and it's the way that Jesus is calling you. He's not calling you from a long way off, no. He's sitting right there in the boat beside you and he's taking you to places deeper and to places happier and to places more joyful than anywhere you've ever known. Maybe the way of the water leads to a baptistry for you. Maybe the way of the water leads you to serve your world with a basin and a towel. Maybe the way of the water leads you to spend your life giving other people the water of life. I don't know how Jesus is going to lead you. Right now, I'm all caught up in how he's leading me. But this is the day that we can start our lives all over again.